This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and centre. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. So it feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioural challenges from the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome. You're listening to The Cable live on DAB Digital Radio. It is Tuesday, November the 22nd. It is 5 p.m. in the City of London. I'm Guy Johnson here in London alongside Alex Steele over in New York. Alex, if I'm being honest, this week, market action, not so much. Basically, volumes are very light. Um, I hear there's some games of football taking place at the moment. Um, I'm sorry about the the 1-1 draw with Wales last night, but... We but a draw's not to... bad, right? I mean, you're playing Wales, okay? I'm just for the Welsh out there. Ouch! America is quite a lot bigger than Wales. Okay, but, gonna but didn't Argentina lose also? They, they lost to Saudi, yeah. Two oh, yeah, it's huge. Amazing. Yeah. Anyway, I, I'm I'm not gonna pour um a, a sort of too much cold water on the American football team until Friday when we play you. Once, and then once... but that's not fair. I can't defend them. I can't defend our team yeah, then. I won't be care. here. I'll call in and and we can do a segment on it. You'll call in. I'm Alex kidding. will be shopping and that. watching football at the same time. So Keep we multitask. think. <laughs> I find it very hard to believe. Uh, anyway, yeah, so market's basically going sideways today. The, the real standout story has been, at least on the equity front, has been the performance of the energy stocks, which have bounced back very strongly. Uh, this whole idea yesterday that Saudi was going to be hiking output seems to have been put to bed. Yep. Uh, Here in the U.S., we are definitely watching crypto. Um, Chapter 11 bankruptcy hearing in Delaware is underway. Some of the headlines here are insane. I mean, I mean, the attorney says that there's a substantial amount of assets missing or stolen. Um, I mean, there's a lot to get through. The emperor has no clothes. I mean, there's a lot here. We'll talk about that throughout the hour as well. Yeah, crypto's taken a little bit of a beating on the back of this. And uh, if these headlines are anything to go by, we'll continue to do so. Uh, in a moment, we'll talk about the OECD's rather um, grim outlook for the, for the UK economy. It was out with its economic forecast today. Uh, we'll talk about that in a moment. But before we do that, here's Charlie Pettit with Hi, some headlines. Thank you very much. Here's what's going on, Guy Johnson. Britain is facing a wave of rail strikes in the run-up to Christmas and into the new year as workers escalate a protest over pay and proposed reforms to the network. Work. The National Union of Rail, Maritime and Transport Workers says that over 40,000 of its members will walk out on December 13th, 14th, 16th and 17th, as well as January 3rd, 4th, 6th and 7th. The industrial action will affect network rail and 14 train companies across the UK and comes alongside an overtime ban from December 18th until January 2nd, meaning workers will refuse extra shifts during the holiday period. The OECD says Britain will plunge to the bottom of the group of seven league table for growth in the next two years as high inflation and interest rates squeeze spending. The group says UK output will contract 0.4% in 2023 and expand just 0.2% in 2024. In a period of stagnation, no other leading industrialized country will experience. We've got more on the topic coming up shortly right here on the cable. The cost of a five-year fixed-rate mortgage has fallen and below 6% for the first time in almost seven weeks, providing a glimmer of hope for Britons affected by the UK's home loans crunch. Those numbers from Money Facts Group. That is the latest uh, from the news desk. Guy Johnson, back to you now in London. 
Charlie Pellet, thank you very much indeed. Charlie, setting us up very nicely. He'll be back in 30 minutes uh, to update us on the headlines, but he's setting us up very nicely for our next conversation. Um, so this was um, this is what the, the OECD's chief economist had to say a little bit earlier about inflation and the trajectory for inflation. What matters right now is to get to a situation in which inflation peaks and starts to come down durably. It has to be durably. It cannot be only one data point. And this is what we need yeah. to monitor. In our forecast, we forecast that uh, basically inflation will start to pivot uh, around uh, mid-next year and will continue to come down, even though it will remain right. fairly high in some countries at the end of 23. View from the OECD. The OECD basically saying the Bank of England is going to have to continue raising rates, probably to circa 4.5% uh, before June next year, because inflation is going to take a while uh, before it peaks. Um, inflation is going to be above targets through to the end of 2024. So the Bank of England is probably have to, going to keep rates, have to keep, have to keep, if I can speak, rates elevated for a while. And the UK is at the bottom of the G7 growth league for the next two years. It's an optimistic outlook. Um, joining us now is our UK economy reporter, Philip Aldrich. Um, how pessimistic are they being relative to everybody else? This is a fairly grim outlook for the UK. This is sunny uplands compared with what the Bank of England published yep. uh, earlier this month. And um, actually, even the, even the Treasury's independent uh, forecaster is, has got a, a worse recession uh, penciled in. Um, so, yeah, this, this goes slightly higher on interest rates, the 4.5% yep. interest rate hit that OECD is expecting until, um, for, right until the end of 2024 is, 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 is slightly worse than the... Uh, than what um, the uh, Office for Budget Responsibility was saying at the autumn statement, um, and it's worse than the Bank of England is expecting. Mm-hmm. So it's different, different sort of things moving around in this forecast, but the, the recession is slightly shallower. Having said that, we do have a recession. The only other G7 country that has a recession is Germany. Germany, Germany bounces back 1.5% in 2024. We c- crawl back at 0.2%. So we don't even recover the 0.4% we've lost. So it's, it definitely is a, is a pretty bleak outlook compared with uh, everyone else. So one one of the big discrepancies between the BOE and um, and the OBR was how much consumers spend their savings. If they don't spend at all, then you have a pretty deep recession. If they spend, then it's a little bit less. Did did the OECD say anything along those lines in terms of the spending money? Yeah, they too, they talk about the hit to consumption. Uh, they don't go into great detail on the savings aspect, um, but uh, you know fundamentally, the what what depresses the economy is the is the say the spending power of households and it being hammered so it's the same story fundamentally but um yeah actually the um the obr have just been giving evidence to uh uh parliament here and the and the, and one of the bosses of the obr was pointing out that they they do have a much more optimistic forecast on that than uh, the bank of england and they did seem to be extraordinarily skeptical about the bank of england's forecast that there will be no dipping into savings at all um, uh, I, in the hard, next I, I find it hard to believe as well. Uh, just he, anecdotally, he, it just there was, me as being... David also, Miles, like, then how do you pay for stuff? Exactly. I mean, you're going to run <laughs> out... You get, is that, I mean, that was basically the point David Miles from the OBR was making, which is that you're going to run out of money. You have got some save... You don't have to save 5% of your yeah. of your earnings, like is, is what the Bank of England is expecting, just normal behaviour. Um, you will use that as a buffer, particularly because they've got this extra £180 billion worth of you know, excess savings built up in the pandemic. So people were... That was his, that was his argument. So um, he, there was definitely a, a little bit of skepticism. It's been pointed out the Bank of England is particularly bleak. Um, more so than all the uh, ad- averages of all the forecasts. Particularly bleak, but everybody's bleak. Everyone's a bit so, down on us, a- yeah. And that's kind of where I think the Brexit debate comes in. 
Um, I read your piece this morning. I, the, the, the debate is back. As the data gets worse, do you think the arguments for a more beneficial arrangement with the EU are going to increase? So just from a sort of purely economics point of view, is this a yeah, no-brainer now? So, so uh, yeah, basically, you don't have any given the economy, so you're going to be looking for areas in which you can basically get, get some of the growth that you need. And yeah. obviously, there's been talk about loosening migration, the migration rules. The, the, yeah. the new visa regime is relatively loose, but the d- business dem- is hoping for, for more. And that, as the, as the OBR has said, that will help growth. So there's that aspect of it. If there was a closer trade deal with Europe, that would also help growth. So mm-hmm. you, you're naturally going to steer towards these kind of no-cost benef- you know, economic yeah. lifts. Economic costs. E- well, political costs, not yeah. economic costs. Yeah. These things are going to be, you know, gains if you can, if you can, un, you know, if you can bring us closer back to Europe. How far politically you're going to be able yeah. to go is a massive question. Also, you know, guy, it's not like let's just say every everyone was like, we love going back to the the EU. It's not like everything gets reversed tomorrow. This isn't going to help everyone's savings today. So even if it was reversed, it's going to take a long time. Yeah. Okay. Less so good job, guys. Way to go! Woo! Yeah, excellent. Anyway, we're going to talk about the politics of this next. Um, Philip, thank you very much indeed. Joe Mays is going to be joining us too to address that side of the coin. Uh, We'll do that next. Here he is. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. You're listening to The K. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. As discussed, we're going to look at the other side of the uh, the coin right now, what is happening in the UK from a political perspective. Uh, today, it was the opposition leader, Keir Starmer's chance to address the Confederation of British Industry in Birmingham. Uh, and Keir Starmer basically coming out and saying that the UK must end its reliance on low pay and cheap labour. Um, this, as the UK economy has a massive participation crisis, uh, there are lots of jobs out there, but there are lots of people not working. So it's hard really to square Starmer's uh, comments with what is happening in the real economy. Uh, Bloomberg UK Government and Treasury reporter Joe Mays joins us now. That's the problem I have with this. Starmer's talking about this idea that we need to pay labour more, that we shouldn't rely on cheap labour, that we shouldn't rely on immigration. Yet this is an economy that has a has a colossal participation problem. Yeah, I mean, this question is always being framed to labour in the context of migration. Keir Starmer's being asked, no, will you increase yep. overseas workers coming here to fill that gap? And he, he never wants to say yes, because he doesn't want labour to be painted as pro-immigration in a way that they think it would hurt them electorally, you know, in the red wall seats where they did so badly in 2019. So yeah, that's why he's always steering away from the migration option. But you're right. I mean, just if... Starmer had his wish and there was massive upskilling across the UK, you would still have a participation problem because we have many people on waiting lists and the NHS and so on, which he he did talk about in his speech today as well. But yeah, it's not a complete package from Labour in terms of how they'd respond to this issue. Well, didn't we hear from um, Jeremy Hunt that they're going to do a work training program, etc.? Is that going to like do any good? Well, yeah, I mean, that's part of that's part of a solution. And Jeremy Hunt has also commissioned a review into this issue of labour inactivity in the UK by a former new Labour figure, Patricia Hewitt. So, you know, we're kind of coming full circle there. Um, yeah, you know, it, it, there has to be multiple 
options that you use to fix this crisis when it comes to the labour market. You know, the Conservative government has said it's open to using its Australian point-style immigration system and having more skilled workers, but we're, we're yet to really see kind of the meat on that. And Starmer made similar noises today, but everyone is basically running scared still of the immigration solution. British business wants a closer relationship with the EU. Is Keir Starmer, is the Labour Party going to give, it, give British business that closer relationship? Well, Labour are slightly closer to what business wants than the Conservative Party. So, for example, on the issue of aligning with the EU on food and plant health rules, Labour said they would be happy to do that, and that would help exports of food and drink, for example, which have been badly hit by Brexit. That's one issue where there's clear blue water between Labour and the Conservatives. But on the big question of rejoining the single market, rejoining the customs union, which would take down the big bulk of the trade barriers, Labour don't want to do that. So for the business community... Do they not want to do it, or are they just waiting for the Conservative Party to have such an economic mess that actually... The argument is much easier. I, is this is this a time story? I think it is a time story. I think, I mean, what, what I'm saying is that for now, that's a no-go for Keir Starmer. But I think that, okay, imagine a world where Labour wins the next general election in 2024. Maybe then, in a few years' time, down the line... The economy's in quite bad shape at that point. He's looking for some easy wins. Yes. If he thinks it's electorally safe to do so, I think that yeah. it would have to be the case that the economic consequences are so stark and exactly. the rejoin option looks like such a compelling prospect that then we're in that world. But we're, we're just, yeah, we're not in that world yet. Well, and we talked about this yesterday, too, in terms of the polls and how the more polling that's done, it seems like there is a reversal on how people feel about Brexit. Is there any, I mean, people change their mind. Like, is there a case to be made for, like, another referendum? Laugh at me. I'm sure you will. But, like, if everyone keeps disagreeing with it, why keep doing it? I will not laugh, but I think that, I mean... Please no. Certainly this, no, I mean, <laughs> certainly this side of the 2024 general election, when we're not, we're not in, in, the, in the question of rejoin, we're not in the question of second referendums, but I think in five, perhaps ten years' time, if the, you know, it's a stable, clear political consensus, economic mm-hmm. consensus that Brexit has been damaging, yes, we're then very much in that world. But for now, it's still just a little bit too sensitive But that's fine, because ten years, you know, Guy, you'll be retired, so you'll be good. <laughs> well, no, that, uh, actually, me being retired is quite an interesting point. Um, the, the demographics of generational shift, I think, are quite important in all of this as well. I, every day, there are younger people joining those who can vote, and they are generally of a more pro-EU volition. And I think that is that demographics is, is one of the key things you want to keep an eye on. Anyway, thanks, Joe. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. The market correction mechanism will be triggered when two conditions are met. So first, the gas price exceeds the predefined level, which is set at 275 euros um, for two weeks. And second, the spread between the DTF price and global LNG price is 58 euros or more for 10 trading days. That was the European Energy Commissioner speaking a little bit earlier about the Commission's plans basically to cap natural gas prices. So they've been fighting about this for ages. There's lots of divisions within the EU. But basically, the Commission is out with a plan to cap natural gas prices way below where they were last August when we had the the huge spike in power prices, gas prices, um, but above where we are now. Um, So what they're proposing, as you just heard there, was a 275 uh, per megawatt hour uh, cap on the gas price. The, the issue here, though, is that this is only going to be activated 
as we've just been hearing, if very strict conditions are met. Now, there are plenty of countries that are long opposed to any kind of a cap, and this is ultimately why the bar is being set very high. So the question now is, are we in a position where actually this doesn't get activated and this doesn't actually have much of an impact? Uh, We've been arguing, as I say, about it for quite a while. Bloomberg's gas and power team leader, Rachel Morrison, joins us now to discuss this. Rachel, you were telling me about this a little bit earlier. Basically, you were saying the bar is now set incredibly high. Even if we'd had this cap in place, it wouldn't have been triggered last August when we had the huge kind of power spikes uh, that that we've faded from since. But, But we're incredibly elevated by historical standards. Exactly, yes. That time in the market was exactly what sort of triggered the need for these emergency talks and for Europe to meet to try to come up with action it could take to stop these huge price surges. Um, and what we think is based on what's been set out today is that, that this cap wouldn't have been triggered last um, summer. So, in effect, this is preparing for an even worse situation, which hopefully some of the other measures will mean we never get to. But it's not going to give that much comfort to those countries or, you know, those companies, those industries that want to really see something that will bring down gas prices because the criteria is, as you say, set so high. It's it's unlikely, we hope, to be reached. Um, What would the knock-on bad effects be if this does go through, I mean, this is presuming that everyone signs on to it. Let's just pretend that that happens. Let's pretend we get to a bad situation and prices spike, et cetera. The spreads blow out, yada, yada. If that happens, what what are the casualties? Where will the kinks lie? Well, what the exchanges have flagged um, this week is that this only applies to exchange-traded contracts. So if you and I, Alex, want to trade gas higher than 275, we can agree to do that over the counter, you know, via a broker. So it doesn't mean it's impossible to trade prices higher than that. Um, The reason that the EU's tried to link it to um, the spread of LNG prices is to try to quell those fears from some member states that a price cap would mean that we don't attract cargoes of LNG. But, you know, it it isn't necessarily going to stop that happening. And it's it's difficult to see that this is all-encompassing enough to do what it, um, the ambition that of having this cap. And, you know, markets, traders find ways around things. So yeah. uh, we can see the price reaction was sort of the opposite. I mean, prices didn't move hugely, but they went up slightly. Whereas, you know, the point of this is to remove some of the risk from the market and make prices fall, which it didn't do. Um, Let's talk about what's happening more specifically in Germany. Um, In the UK, we basically sent out checks. Everybody's getting some money. Everybody's going to be able, therefore, to take advantage of the government schemes. It's not very complicated, and therefore most people will benefit from it. However, there isn't the price incentive for people to reduce their consumption. In in Germany, they've unveiled a package which looks ferociously complicated. Therefore, people are going to struggle to deal with it. And as a result of which, it may not have the effect that they wanted. But on the other hand, it does have the benefit of maybe encouraging people to use less. Rachel, is there any view on which way round this is going to work best? 
Yes, I think you've put your finger on the difference between the two kind of measures. And interestingly, the CEO of a big um, European company that isn't in either of those markets had noticed that the German um, scheme was sort of more fair um, on vulnerable households, those who use... um, maybe have inefficient homes and have high bills. And as you say, that kind of embedded measure that means that you use less energy is helpful. But we've seen that the UK has had to sort of redesign and reassess the level at which they're going to help people because they found that targeting it was Mm -hmm. too difficult. Um, However, the German um, mechanism has received quite a lot of um, backlash from other countries in Europe and we know that um, it, the measure also includes a windfall tax that's similar to other windfall taxes. Companies have come out and said it's going to stop investment in renewables. So it's not simple on either side, but I think the nuance of the German proposal appeals more to helping those most in need rather than helping everybody. Yeah, and if you have you know 54 billion euros to throw at it for a couple of months, sure, yeah, why not? Um, Rachel... What, what's the next event that you're watching? What's what's the next turning point in this conversation? Well, we have a meeting this week in Brussels of EU energy ministers, um, which is where the sort of wider package that we've spoken about before, the joint purchasing, all gets approved and there'll be more discussions about the gas price cap. So by the end of the week, we should have more of an idea about whether the price cap is going to work and go through in its current form and whether that wider package of proposals will move Mm -hmm. forward. Um, So that will be a big moment, even though we expect the cap to be discussed at a further meeting in December. But we should have a lot more clarity um, ahead of next winter on what exactly Europe has, the tools in its toolbox, if you like. Every day is an energy commissioner meeting, honestly. Um, Hey, Rachel, thanks a lot. Rachel Morrison joining us. Really appreciate it. All right, coming up next, we're going to go back to FTX, that bankruptcy hearing underway in Delaware. Some of the headlines really are staggering, saying that FTX wasn't run well. There are lots of assets stolen or missing. We're going to get your update next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson is over in London. It's just past 5.30 where you guys are, just past 12.30 here in the U.S. Quick check on the markets here. Honestly, I'm not taking this movement seriously at all. Rally underway in U.S. equities. Volume super light. You did have some retail earnings out. So Best Buy actually surprised with its outlook. Maybe the worst was already baked into stocks. It also shows that if you can beat low expectations, you can still get rewarded by the market. Dollar Tree, on the other hand, consumables is doing really well, but it's a lower margin business. And so that um, outlook was weighing on the stock just a touch. You're also seeing a rally into the bond market, but you're still looking at 74 basis point spread between the twos and the tens. Um, and commodities kind of finding their footing. But really, we really care about crypto right now. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. In the meantime, here's some other stories we're paying attention to. Here's Charlie Pellet. Hi, thank you very much, Alex Steele. Here's what's going on. Labor Party leader Keir Starmer is a warning that the British business community has to do more to train domestic workers and reduce its reliance on overseas labor amid growing calls from executives to increase migration to plug shortages. Starmer told the Confederation of British Industries conference today the days when low pay and cheap labor 
labor are part of the British way on growth must end. The labor leader does not want his party to be seen as soft on immigration as it tries to win back voters in its former industrial northern heartlands who switched to the Conservatives in 2019. The OECD says Britain will plunge to the bottom of the Group of Seven league table for growth in the next two years as high inflation and interest rates squeeze spending. Europe's top meat processor is building a new bacon plant in the UK. Danish Crown will invest £100 million to build the facility near Manchester. The move comes during a tumultuous time for the UK livestock industry. A worker shortage at slaughterhouses last year, exacerbated by Brexit and the pandemic, has spurred the call of thousands of pigs. High feed and energy prices have also left farmers across Europe pairing back herds. Britain is facing a wave of rail strikes in the run-up to Christmas and into the new year as workers escalate a protest over pay and proposed reforms to the network. The National Union of Rail, Maritime and Transport Workers says over 40,000 of its members will walk out on December 13th and 14th, 16th and 17th, as well as January 3rd and 4th, 6th and 7th. That is the latest from the news desk. Alex Steele, back to you now here in New New York. All right, Charlie Pellet, thank you so very much. Guy, does that mean you have like no train again? Like, what is that for you? It's not good. It's not good. I, okay. It was interesting. Um, we were talking earlier to Philip Aldrich. He was talking about us crawling out of this recovery. We're going to have to crawl because basically there are going to be no buses and no trains. Cool. Cool, cool, cool. All right, good luck. That sounds great. Really? Although, to be fair, That's we're looking at a, a train strike here, but maybe a little bit different than where you are. Um, okay, let's get to one of the top stories of the day, and that's what's happening with FTX. So the bankruptcy hearing is underway in Delaware, although they are taking about a 10-minute break. Um, the last remaining line that the lawyer um, for the company said is that there will be millions of creditors. Basically, the scale of what we're seeing and the drama is changing and increasing every moment of every day. And Katie Greifeld's been tracking all of it, uh, Bloomberg's co-host of Crypto IRL. Katie, there's a lot that went to in the hearing the last hour and a half. Can you just walk us through some of the highlights? The highlight for me is this discussion on the list of the 50 biggest creditors. It was a redacted names list. And this is something that we were discussing with Stephen Church. He's a bankruptcy reporter at Bloomberg News yesterday. That is highly unusual. Uh, Why would they do something like that? So we're getting a little bit of color on that right now. Uh, Basically, there's a tension between keeping customers private, these privacy concerns, and transparency. I'm looking for the exact wording. But basically, we don't want, one of the lawyers for FTX said, we don't want customers to have their information involuntarily disclosed. Also, uh, they argued that if customer names are revealed, then other firms could solicit their businesses. Uh, But at the same time, you have the FTX team. Well, the FTX team is also calling this list a valuable asset. So they want to keep this private. I'm genuinely stunned by this. Sorry, they're worried about losing customers. I don't. I did. You know, reading the tea leaves of just what the man said, perhaps. But yeah, just to put that point on it again, the lawyer is arguing that customer names, you say who they are, other firms could solicit the business. So there you go. Um, I also wonder if it would like wow. just create more of a run on and contagion mm-hmm. at that point. So, you know, who holds it, et cetera. Um, yeah. What were some of the other nuggets that we learned? Um, from the company? Well, we did hear that uh, a, quote, substantial amount of the assets, the FTX assets, are either 
missing or they've uh, been stolen. But stolen. But either way, they're not there. Uh, so the co-head of restructuring over at Sullivan and Cromwell said that unfortunately the FTX debtors were not particularly well run, and that is an understatement. So that would be spicy in almost any other case. But we already heard from John J. Ray again, the man charged with uh, Enron. Enron's bankruptcy proceedings, liquidation. And uh, he was saying that, I mean, these the record keeping was basically non-existent. So I think that that's going to be a recurring theme here. And that ties into the creditors as well. We have more than a million creditors here, almost non-existent record keeping. This is going to take years probably to sort through. In terms of the impact that this case could have, there are a number of other firms clinging on by their fingertips. Mm -hmm. um, there are worries about further bankruptcies. How will this case, could this case, impact how those other situations evolve? You know, something that I've been thinking a lot recently is just how concentrated all these different functions are in the crypto world. I mean, FTX is a great example of you know, the fact that for a lot of these exchanges, these firms, they're the broker, they're the exchange, yeah. they're the custodian. And when you think about the contagion and some of, you know, perhaps the other chips to fall, the bankruptcies that could follow from here, I mean, it just creates this daisy chain of blowups. Because again, these are all separate functions in the world of traditional finance, but you put them all under one shop and that shop falls and it gets ugly. But in terms of what we're watching for from here, obviously Genesis, fantastic scoop from Bloomberg News last night. The Genesis, again, they halted withdrawals last week. Now they're looking for fresh financing to the tune of about a billion dollars. If they don't get that, bankruptcy looks pretty likely. And uh, it doesn't seem like anyone is really stepping up here. Who's the savior at this point? I'm not sure. Yeah, that was interesting, too. Um, I think Matt Levine wrote about that. It's like, how do you save a crypto industry when those that invest in crypto also don't have the money because yeah. they invested in crypto? <laughs> it's a good I mean, question. That's a really fair point. I also want to just point out here, um, so the lawyer, James Bromley, um, he's a co-head of restructuring practice at Sullivan Carmel, as Kitty was just saying, said um, that we have probably witnessed one of the most abrupt and difficult corporate collapses in the history of corporate America. And uh, corporate America has a long history here. I yeah. Say, but, yeah. I mean, that's much. Air MF Global, there's Lehman. I mean, like, this is, those are staggering statements. How does this company keep the lights on? Well, that's the thing. And that's something I was reading in um, the live blog, the top live blog on the terminal as well. Typically in bankruptcy cases, you have sort of motions filed. Can we keep paying our employees, et cetera, et cetera. But because this was so sudden and so shocking and so wide, just huge that a lot of those typical motions haven't even been filed yet. So in terms of keeping the lights on, what's happening to the employees at this point, I'm not really sure. I'm not sure anyone knows right now. One of the problems with that is that obviously this is a com company that has assets, has operations all over the world. Mm. And the Bahamas is obviously the center of this. How do we, is, is the Delaware court case now going to be the epicenter of the action? Or are there still going to be competing events taking place in in the United States? I understand that the New York case is now being probably going to be folded into the Delaware one, but mm -hmm. is this kind of the the Delaware hearing versus a separate separate hearing that is going to be taking place in the Bahamas? And and how does that work? It is bizarre, and that's again something that we were talking about with Stephen Church yesterday. Because I was like, I don't often cover bankruptcy, especially yeah, I know. now you do. <laughs> now yeah. I do. It's like how unusual is it to see this sort of turf war 
sort of break out. And he said it's unusual. It's not unprecedented. It's unusual. But it does seem that obviously New York would like to handle this uh, in, in Delaware. And then you have the Bahamas or rather, you know, the, the Delaware court would take control here. But the Bahamas are trying to fight to also be able to, you know, do this their own way for their own people. Everyone wants to get paid. Oh, absolutely. Like, like, like at the end of the day, and then, and, and to that point too. And this brings me back to the workers. It's like we don't even know how the workers were getting paid or are getting paid, particularly if they had any equity or crypto exposure in the company or FTT. Yeah. And at the same time, even if they did, and then that money is stolen, like I just. I don't quite understand how that works. And it's like you need the workers to keep going in order to protect the assets to make sure nothing else is stolen. Like Exactly. I, it boggles my mind. Cybersecurity. Yeah. It's going to be a big issue. Yeah. Yeah. And I am really interested to see where just the crypto industry in general goes from here. It, uh, it's hard to you know talk about this case without keeping an eye on what's happening to Coinbase stock, for example. It's just getting absolutely obliterated. If you look at the bonds, for example, the Coinbase bonds, they've almost halved in value. Uh, it's really nuts. And even though Coinbase hasn't really been caught up in any direct way in any of this, it just feels like mm. this is an existential moment for people in the crypto community. Do we trust these centralized exchanges? It seems like everyone trusted SBF, everyone trusted FTX, mm. and uh, now everyone, it seems like cold wallets are the hot thing right now. So we'll yeah. see what this means. Soup cans under my bed, man. <laughs> I got the my crypto, money in gold. That's a crypto joke. Crypto equivalent, yeah. Um, SBF, talking mm-hmm. of money in gold, maybe that's where it all is. Um, what do we know about what he's doing? Mm-hmm. He's gone very quiet. Does he get involved in this case? Does he provide any information to what is happening with with this uh, with this uh, uh, slowly unfolding, I suspect, bankruptcy case? I, I just wonder what also, his, is he literally his role in the Bahamas? Is. Yeah, you where like, where is he? What's going on? Did you guys see that tweet? That was a photo of him in a grocery store looking at his phone. No. Oh my, oh gosh. my gosh! Really? Yeah, man, you guys. Uh, Need to run in some of my circles on Twitter. Yeah, that that I've, that looked like the Bahamas. I saw some palm trees. Uh, I'm not clear on where he is, or if he's in the Bahamas, does he have protection? I mean, if they're redacting the names of the customers, of course, so for solicitation purposes as well, but also for privacy. I mean, this is a very high emotion case. Uh, hopefully, he has protection, but. I think he would like to get involved. His tweeting was a huge issue uh, in terms of undermining the case. That was the argument made by FTX. We know that Congress wants to hold hearings next month with him. Will he physically be there? I would be very interested to see uh, what his involvement looks like in this case, what potential charges will be brought. Uh, These are all open questions right now. What's your take on Grayscale? Um, we talked about this last week. That like, you were already keying into this last week. Net asset value super tanking. We talked to a CFTC commissioner who was like, "Things that are regulated here, like they're okay. Mm-hmm. We do our job." Mm-hmm. So what's going on with Grayscale? Oh man, what is going on with Grayscale? So this gets in theory they should be fine. In theory, they should be fine. I mean, if you look at this, gets back to the whole daisy chain thing and how interconnected all these companies are. So Genesis, which we talked about, I mean, that's owned by Digital Currency Group, 
Digital Currency Group owns Grayscale. If you look at the portfolio of DCG, Grayscale theoretically right now is the crown jewel. It does make money. We talk all the time about the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, or I talk all the time <laughs> about GVTC. I don't know if that's a normal person thing, but it's trading at a huge discount, uh, over 40% to its net asset value. So be easy to look at that and say, this is broken. It's not. It charges 2% annually. It has $10 billion in that. You you know work that out on the back of a napkin, that's like $200 million in revenue per year. So, Grayscale, mm. by all in what we know, that should like be Woods fine. buying tons of it? Oh, man. I, that, so, Kathy Wood's actually on Bloomberg Radio and Television later today, and I sent that question. Uh, to be asked, why is she buying GBTC here? Is she? Is it some sort of well, arbitrage on the discount? What What is the belief? Because I don't know what would collapse that discount other than spot Bitcoin ETF approval, and that seems like a pipe dream. Um, quickly, the parent to Grayscale. Mm. If there is some contagion from Genesis to the parent. Um, does that affect Grayscale, or is it its own entity? That is a very good question, because DCG, I think, owns about 10% of GBTC's shares. So, so they could sell it. If they were in a crunch, I mean, it. there's 10%, so we'll see. So it's that, but there's no like other collateral lending Not that I risk weirdness. know of, but mm -hmm. if anyone has any ideas, I'm on the Bloomberg <laughs> Terminal. And really, she, she's on Twitter, let's be honest, Constantly. as she just told us. Um, <laughs> all right, Katie, really great stuff. I mean, it's it's such wonderful reporting, and it is so hard to get your mind around, and we just really appreciate you doing that with us. Thank you so much, Katie Greifeld. Follow her on Twitter. What's your handle? Hey, Greifeld. Keeping it simple. Yeah, Kate Greifeld. Do that rather than me and Guy. And, th and then follow me and Guy. Um, all right, coming up, it is a week. We still have a week to go, right? We get the Fed minutes tomorrow. We get a lot of Fed speak coming. We get uh, Black Friday on Friday. That seems a little obvious. We're going to hear more on what to look for with Michael McKee next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Given the high level of inflation, restoring price stability remains the number one focus of the FOMC. And we're committed to using our tools to put inflation on a sustainable downward trajectory to 2%. Uh, the Cleveland Fed President Loretta Mester speaking a little bit earlier on today. She's talking about wages, as you just heard. She's speaking about inflation as well, talking about the idea uh, the restoring price stability remains the Fed's number one focus. Now, tomorrow, we're going to get minutes out from the Federal Reserve, from the last meeting. Is everybody on the same page? Is everybody thinking along the same lines? Let's talk about where we are with this debate. Joining us as ever to think about these things, Bloomberg's Mike McKee. Mike, what are we going to learn about unity? Well, that's an interesting question. Uh, when you listen to the Fed officials who have spoken, and it's most of them since the meeting on November 2nd, uh, they seem pretty unified uh, in terms of the idea of bringing the rate of, in, of uh, rate increases down to 50 basis points. And there's a general unanimity around the idea that the terminal rate is somewhere around five. Some are at 4.75, some are at 5.25, but generally around 5%. So it isn't clear what we would see in terms of real disagreement. The people who uh, have to write about the Fed for a living and like to gin up controversies, say they're divided over the terminal rate. But when you're talking 25 basis points here or there, it's, uh, it, it hardly matters. Uh, what will be interesting, probably more interesting to look for instead of division is what the 
majority or what a large number of Fed officials think about how long they have to leave the terminal rate in place, how long high rates have to last in order to bring down inflation, and when do they see inflation coming down? The thing about um, the, the, the Fed is they made their last forecast for the economy back in September, and everybody else has adjusted theirs. The Fed won't until December 14th. So maybe we get a clue uh, from what they were thinking then about how high they might have to adjust going forward. Um, is the Fed going to be worried at all about what the bond market is telling them? I mean, I feel like this question is a question of the last entire year. But it does feel like we've seen a flattener continue. And I just wonder if they're taking any signal from that right now. I'm not sure what the bond market is telling you. <laughs> the problem is the bond market uh, has been very uh, schizophrenic. It's gone up. It's gone down. Uh, we saw 30-year yields falling today. Uh, we've seen the Fed chairman's favorite measure, the three-year yield uh, out to 18 months. That curve inverted, and he said that means that uh, the Fed has got to cut rates because we're going into recession. And then he changed his mind and told me last month that uh, it means that people think inflation is going down. So I don't think the Fed's reading too much into the bond market right now. Uh, if they're watching the bond market at all, it's going to be because we're at end of year and that's going to cause the usual liquidity dislocations. Mm. And they'll keep an eye on that. But I don't think there's a, a real message uh, from the bond market other than what the Fed has already been telling them. You notice Mary Daly said yesterday, the San Francisco Fed Bank president, that uh, she thinks the bond market is reflecting the Fed, that they're tighter than the Fed uh, is at this point in, in effective terms. So they're doing the Fed's work for them. What's happening with mortgage rates, Mike, over there? Because I'm really curious about the transmission of policy. Over here, with the Bank of England, as a result of the mini-budget fiasco, we have a situation where the Bank of England is going to be raising rates, but mortgage rates are falling. How does that relationship, how is that relationship working in the States? It's a little different. It's not as, it's, it's not direct. Obviously, it's not direct in England either, but uh, what ends up happening is the, the cost of money goes up for banks, so they have to raise mortgage rates. But how much they raise rates is not one-to-one. It in part depends exactly, on the 10-year yeah. note yield. That's sort of the benchmark. But then uh, many of the mortgages that uh, it, it, I'm sure a majority of the mortgages that are made in the U.S. are purchased by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, the mortgage, guar mortgage guarantee companies. And they have a minimum rate that they will accept in terms of the mortgage rate. And that's usually lower than what the prevailing rate is. So that tends to put a little downward pressure on rates. Uh, and then you have the market come into play. If people stop uh, borrowing altogether, then banks are going to try to find some way to bring mortgage rates down a little bit to get people back into the market, which they've done uh, in the recent weeks. So does that hurt the Fed's transmission mechanism going forward? Or, yeah. No, this is what is the normal pattern. Okay. Uh, the Fed's transmission mechanism has worked well enough. We've seen new home and existing home sales kind of fall off a cliff. Mortgages are way, way down, mortgage originations. So the housing market is doing its part. It's the first one that really has been affected by the Fed. Normally, you would see autos in the same category. Mm -hmm. But there's been such a shortage of cars 
that we haven't seen as much impact. It's hard to separate out why we're not buying cars, whether it's the rate or the fact that you just can't get one. Mike, we're going to leave you there. Thank you very much indeed. Bloomberg's Mike McKee joining us on what is happening uh, with the with the Fed. You're going to get Fed minutes tomorrow. Obviously, it's a relatively quiet week. You get a lot of Fed speakers between sort of now and Thursday, but Thursday being Thanksgiving, uh, it's going to be a relatively quiet period. Um, thank you very much indeed, Mike. I've got a bit of breaking news that I think a lot of people are going to want to pay attention to. Uh, Manchester United, this is a football story. Alex is paying a great deal of attention to this because I know she's been following this very closely. Manchester United has announced in a tweet over the last few minutes that Cristiano Ronaldo who's been having a great time in Manchester, I joke, uh, is going to be leaving the club with immediate effects. The club thanks him for his immense contribution across two spells at Old Trafford. But the second one, I have to say, has been, um, it's been not going very well. So one of the legends of the game uh, is going to be departing. Really didn't get on with management, didn't get on with the coach, has really struggled on the pitch uh, as a result of that. Anyway... Just thought I'd bring that to everybody. Thought you might want to know. No, good talk, Alex, good talk. With, Thank you. Is it yeah, yeah. with huge. anticipation on this story? It's yep. huge, it's huge. Um, well, I'm not going to see you guys for the rest of the week. Guy, have a wonderful week. I know you're going to be working triple duty, so good luck. Uh, I will check baking. in with you on Friday with the, the match, shopping. and I will update you on regularly on my, on my Black Friday shopping and how good those deals really are. This is the important stuff. Uh-huh. This is Bloomberg. <laughs>